Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh. I'm joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? David, I am better than ever because I'm seeing you because yes. you were away last week on vacation. Now, so. I had a little holiday at the Isle of Skye, which was, was brilliant. Uh, it was not very hot, but today we're going to talk about the fact that it is very hot uh, in large parts of the United States right now. We, we've seen record temperatures across the United States, records being broken seemingly every day. And, and wildfires stretching over large sections of, of the American West. Uh, and so we want to talk about how Americans have dealt with heat. And the heat we are experiencing right now is uh, extraordinary caused by global warming and, and all other things. But uh, the problem of, of how do you deal with, with the heat of the summer is, is not necessarily a new one. No, 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 that's right. Although it should be said, this is, uh, you're right about the extreme heat in the United States now and in uh, other parts of North America. Uh, Western Canada, Canada, for example, but also here in the UK. So the Met Office recently here in the UK issued its first uh, extreme heat advisory in its history uh, because it's been quite warm. It's been over 30 degrees Celsius in um, parts of England mainly. But um, so so the the summer heat is is, uh, affecting people across the Northern Hemisphere at the moment. To be sure. Edinburgh, it's about 75 degrees right now, a little bit overcast, so it's not so hot here, but... uh, you know, Scottish people have different uh, Yeah, I was feeling warm yesterday, David. Yeah, I was okay. feeling warm, but um, uh, certainly by our standards. Andrew. And it goes to, I think, one of the themes of, uh, of today's episode will be uh, people adapt to their environments and have to adapt to their environments. Mm. And we, living here on a rather cool, wet island in the North Atlantic, uh, live in a place that's not particularly well adapted to rising temperatures uh, because it's the architecture sure, and the sure. way our lives have evolved uh, haven't been they haven't done so in response to to extreme heat. We may need to do so in the coming decades. I fear uh, that that seems it seems likely given given all the forecasts. So so how how have Americans dealt with it in the past, David? Well, um, you know, one thing to think about is is uh, you know global warming is is a recent phenomenon. If you look at the colonial era though there, there wasn't actually quite as hot even if in the than it would have been um say prior to global warming there, there was what some climatologists call a little ice age that lasted and people debate the dates on this somewhere from the middle of the 15th century until somewhere in the middle of the 18th century and, and there's some debates about the start date and the end date of that but the planet as a whole was a little bit cooler by a few degrees then uh, which made a difference, I think, actually, in, in how uh, accessible North America was for uh, the people who, who lived there. Uh, you know, the, like the, you know, in the James River, for instance, froze occasionally in Virginia. Hasn't frozen in the past 100 and 200 years, but it did freeze occasionally in, in the colonial era. Uh, same was true also in London. You know, the Thames froze, used to freeze over, they used to have ice fairs. On the Thames, which yeah, is you see images of people skating, doing all, yeah, which obviously you can't uh, can't do anymore. Um, so it was a little bit less uh, hot than than it is today, or even if it, as it was a hundred years ago. Uh, but it still got pretty hot in North America compared to, especially where people were coming from from England. Sure, I mean the the, uh, but you're right to mention the Little Ice Age because the winters were certainly cooler than they are now. Um, during the what we call the colonial period in American history, 
and the summers were a little cooler, but they still had high summer temperatures. This is where we need to draw a distinction, and this is one of the things that I think gets confused in the debates about climate change mm. and the discussions about climate change, the difference between weather mm. and, and climate. climate. Yeah. So the climate might have been cooler in the 18th century. That's not to say that they didn't have hot days, days and have to, to cope sure. with heat, and they had to cope with the kind of temperatures that we occasionally have to cope with. Uh, the question is how many of those days did they have, yeah, for yeah. example. Exactly. Uh, but But there's no doubt that in the colonial and early national periods, Americans, and I'm talking about all the people who were resident in what became the United States, had to cope with heat. Mm. There, was, there was no doubt about that. And that's, I guess, uh, today's theme and how they did it. And in the colonial period, of course, they did not have uh, access to the kind of technologies that we do to deal with heat, but they were quite adaptive so they you know it was obvious things now i'm talking mainly about settlers not necessarily mm. indigenous people and i think we need to talk about enslaved people too uh but you know settlers wore lighter clothing they wore linen clothing instead of wool clothing and things like that but they also uh adapted in terms of the kinds of um architecture they had now this Mainly applies to people of means, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, if you go to some of the houses, the the, the larger colonial houses, colonial era houses, especially, I mean, we need to talk about the South, which is your yeah, sure. in a minute. But uh, you'll see they're they're designed with um, often again we're talking about people of means, slightly higher ceilings, bigger windows, but with shutters, yeah. so you could you could let in air, but also try to keep the sun out. And so there are there are architectural adaptations that are made. Um, and people um, change their day. Front porches, the veranda mm -hmm. concept. You know, why do houses have porches? They're not just to look quaint. It's some place to go when it's when it's hot. Yeah, it's a. I think it's a very uh, important part of, of of southern culture. In part, is this 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 idea of a porch culture, a veranda. You know, sitting outside on on especially on a front porch was you know a way of keeping cool, but it was also a a social dynamic that you would see people on their front porch, and some some people have lamented that that has you know disappeared to a large degree because people have air conditioning and can stay inside. Uh, so so they, there are architectural steps you can that were used especially in the South to make houses, especially wealthy houses, more livable. One of the ways in which you see this, if you look at sort of uh, Houses built at the same time period and compare sort of New England houses with um, the houses built in the South. In New England houses, they put the chimney in the middle. Right. In the Southern houses, they put them um, on the sides of the house. So why is that, David? Well, in, in if you're in New England, the thing you're most worried about is 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 freezing to death in the winter, and you want to heat your whole house. So you put the chimney in the middle, and so the chimney therefore heats as much of the house as you can. In the south, you're much more worried about overheating in the summer, so you, you put the chimneys on the sides, which which makes the heat, at least half of the heat, dissipate all, all off the side of the building. Uh, so you can still you know use fires for cooking in, in the summertime without uh, making the, the entire house into an oven. Uh, but there's some really ingenious ways of, of making air circulate in, in southern houses. You know, porches, as you mentioned, are one way. Um, Whole systems, as you mentioned, of shutters to, to make, you know, to, to close off uh, access to sunlight that you would open and close at certain times of the day. Um, and, and breathe ways to sort of create flows of air through the houses. Um, you know, and you see this most pronounced if you go on sort of 
southern house plantation tours you see uh, sort of evidence of, of this but it's it's you also see it in in um poorer uh, the houses of poorer people as well there's a, a architectural phenomenon called a, a shotgun house are you familiar with shotgun houses i'm familiar with the phrase, phrase. okay yeah, well the idea of a shot the reason why it's called a shotgun house is because it's basically one you know you can there's a front door and a back door and you can theoretically sort of shoot a shotgun through the front door all the way through the house to the back door uh, and sort of along uh, you know uh, hallways is, is, is the, the sort of structure of the house but it's designed to create as much airflow through the house to cool it off as possible so you can leave both doors open, open in, the summer. in summer right exactly um You know, when we think, though, about the, the effects uh, of heat and the ways in which that shaped uh, life in the South, it, you know, it's, it's the people who bore the, the worst of it, uh, at least in, uh, prior to emancipation, were, in, were enslaved people because they're doing, you know, the work in the fields, the, the picking cotton, growing tobacco, uh, rice, sugar, what have you. Um, and one of the ways in which enslavers justified slavery was they said look the only people who are they claimed biologically able to sustain live in this heat are people of african descent we need slavery because we need to grow these crops and the only people they said who could grow these crops were, were enslaved uh, people of african descent um, and this shows up over and over again in the 1830s and 1840s it even shows up in some of the uh, secessionist documents where they say look our climate is predicated upon slavery and there's something about the the heat of the south that necessitates it um just obviously nonsense but that that's an argument that that they made very boldly um you know but they, i think they also recognized that enslaved people suffered a tremendous amount in the heat and that, that it, you know that, that enslaved people died from heat stroke exhaustion uh and what have you uh, and and they had different sort of ways around this some if you read uh, the, the manuals that, that enslavers write for how to manage plantations and what uh, they often recommend in the hottest days of summer to, to stop enslaved people working and, and for two or three hours in the middle of the day uh, to avoid the heat. And it's unclear how many uh, you know, uh, plantation managers actually did this. Uh, some did, but you know, some obviously didn't. Uh, we know from... Um, Fugitive slave narratives and WPA interviews that many formerly enslaved people describe working in the heat of the day, working you know throughout you know 100 degree temperatures in Mississippi and Alabama, and seeing people uh, you know pass out from the heat and from dehydration. Right, and one of the jobs that uh, enslaved children were often given was to to distribute water uh, to to to. Uh, enslaved people working in fields to make sure that they you know, didn't get too dehydrated, although most of them were probably dehydrated for much of the time. Yeah. Um, it's it, a pretty, you know, when you, and if you think about slave quarters, slave quarters were amazingly hot. Right, well, that's right, because there's, if you ever see them, or know, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the few that have been recreated, they're small and they're, cramped and they're often not very well ventilated. ventilated no. Uh, they, they, there's different architectures for slave quarters in different parts of the South, but most of them became ovens. And so while you see, you know, the, the, the plantation house where the white people are living 
being engineered to be as cool as possible. Um, slave quarters are, are not, you know, and, and they're doing all kinds of things in the in the main house. One of the things that they actually import from India is called a, I think it's called a puka, which is basically a, a kind of ceiling fan. It's basically a, a large board that's sort of uh, pushed back and forth via a, sort of a pulley rope system. Uh, they would often have an enslaved child in, you know, in a corner or actually it's not in a sort of side room, sort of pulling up and down on a rope to make this ceiling fan uh, move the air. That's actually a job that, that Booker T. Washington had as a very small child when he was enslaved. Um, was, was pulling this rope up and down all day to, to keep the white people uh, at least moderately more cool. Um, I mean, the other thing enslaved, enslavers did to deal with the heat is they often left their plantations in the heat of the summer, so... Um, yeah, your low country Charleston you know, planters went to Newport. They went to Newport, um, or they went to uh, Flat Newport Rock. Rhode Island. Right, 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 yeah. <laughs> Which is a, you know, a perfectly pleasant seaside town later filled with, or often built with millionaires and billionaires uh, today. Um, but they also went to places like, like uh, Flat Rock in the North Carolina mountains, which is uh, much cooler than, than Charleston is in the summer. Um, you know, so much so they called Flat Rock Little, little Charleston, uh, where all the sort of uh, low country elite went to, to go and, and spend a cooler uh, few months. Obviously, that's not a uh, benefit that their enslaved workers had who were back in the low country in, in the sweltering heat through all of that. The other reason why they left also has to do with the disease environment, right? This is the, the hot weather also was the high point for, for malaria and, and yellow fever. Uh, and so escaping to, to the mountains or to Rhode Island was was way to, to, to deal with that. Yeah, and it certainly in the, when Philadelphia was the capital of the United States, um, there were yellow fever outbreaks in the 1790s that were quite severe, but the government basically decamped for the summer. Summer, yeah. Uh, you know, everybody went home. Uh, and the same was true in D.C., which yeah. is a, can be very, very unpleasantly hot in the summer. Um, I have a question for you, Frank. My image of the guys who were at the you know Second Continental Congress or or at the Constitutional Convention, they're all wearing like tons and tons of clothes. They're all wearing like you know jackets and like vests and four shirts and 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 wigs and stuff that doesn't seem like you want to be wearing them in July in Philadelphia. What's the deal? Well, they are certainly in John Trumbull's paintings. So, so if you think about and the paintings we see of these guys, okay. and they all are, they're, they're all guys, although we sometimes see their women painted with them. Um, yes. But, but those kinds of paintings from the 18th century and even the early 19th century, of course, are statements themselves, right? And so you present somebody in a certain... One of our former students, Gay Wilson, who mm. uh, was a historian for many years at Monticello, has written about this. Uh, the way these people present themselves in their paintings and by, by what they're wearing is, a, is meant to be a deliberate statement. So you see them wearing... Um, the kinds of layers of clothing you're, you're talking about. And often, whether they actually wore those in July in Philadelphia when they were at a meeting of the Continental Congress, or famously during the, the um, summer when the Constitutional Convention met in 1787, yeah. 
the windows were allegedly nailed shut in Philadelphia so that nobody could overhear the deliberations. Fans of the musical 1776 probably have the Hot as Hell in Philadelphia song. Yes, right now. Yeah. yes. But, but, you know, if you were going to sit and listen to Alexander Hamilton's six-hour oration about the virtues of the British monarchy, you wouldn't want to do it sitting there in a, in a wool suit or a velvet suit necessarily. So I, I think they were probably in... So the paintings are lying, they're wearing flip-flops and T-shirts? Not, no, they're not wearing flip-flops and T-shirts, but there are looser linen versions of a lot of these suits that I think they're wearing. I don't think they're wearing necessarily wearing full wool suits in the summer. Oh, God, uh, I, I think not. they're wearing uh, you know, more casual... I don't think they're turning up in track suits. I want to make this clear. <laughs> <laughs> but there are summer versions of these suits, these which suits, is okay. what, what they're wearing. I, I, I think you, you have to assume that. And, you know, I don't know. They can loosen their cravats. In fact, I was talking, I, I think it's okay for me to say this. I was talking to Peter Onuf yesterday, and uh, Peter and I were discussing fashion among academics. And if you know Peter and I, you'll find this a deeply ironic discussion. And Peter was making the point that he likes to start with a jacket and tie on so that when he's doing a public performance mm. and a spe uh, speaking, because then he can take his jacket off as a kind of statement. That now we're getting to the really important stuff. And the shock that he has had recently, and I, again, I think I can say this with, with Peter's blessing, is that now, of course, style's gone the other way, where neckties are going out of fashion. So, so Peter thought, it's okay to wear a tie and a, sh a shirt and tie with no jacket, but actually what you should be wearing now is a jacket and shirt with no tie. But he feels this that the dramatic effect is lost. And that this is kind of apropos. I don't know whether during the Constitutional Convention they were deciding, okay, I can wear my jacket with my tie, with my shirt open, or do I have to keep take my jacket off and keep my cravat oh, on? Okay. Alexander Hamilton thing. taking his jacket off and throwing it on the ground, saying, "Give me a strong executive branch." <laughs> that, that's right. That's right. Okay. So, so uh, I'm not really doing justice to this conversation that Peter and I had. It's typical of many of the conversations Peter and I have. It's it ephemeral. Meant, it, it was it's, meant to be about something like else, and we ended up talking about jackets and ties and shirts and what combination of the three. One thing we both agreed on is the the one combination you should never wear hmm. is a jacket. Tie and no shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Wise fashion advice. That's why people listen to the show. But one thing that strikes me though is that, that you know, in in the 18th century, it's the heat is something that that is there. They are dealing with it as best they can. But it's more about dealing with the heat that is uh, that exists rather than trying to actually make the rooms cooler. No, I mean apart from as you say architectural innovations maybe a fan and that sort of thing but but you basically you're stuck with the weather as it is and you you dress accordingly and you deal with it yeah. and you know when the heat's at its most extreme if you're in an urban area and you have the means to do so you leave that place you might swim naked in the potomac as john quincy adams did <laughs> um but 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 with a tie on with a, with a tie on he probably did um but you don't um but but basically the weather and the climate are just something you have to live with and so sometimes it's extremely cold sometimes it's extremely hot and you, you've got to deal with it. You might change your diet a little bit, mm. you know, so you don't eat big heavy meals in the middle of the day, that sort of thing. But um, they, they have to adapt to it. The notion that you could apply technological solutions to changing your own personal environment mm. doesn't exist in the 18th century, really.
That starts to in the 19th in century. century yeah, right? well, I mean, there's and there's a couple of, of sort of milestones in the 19th century. People are actually trying to, to deal with heat in different ways. Uh, one is the uh, development of the ice trade. There was a huge trade in the 19th century, and it grows over the course of the century, in basically mining, excavating ice, uh, and shipping it around the country and indeed around the world. And the, the person who gets credited with starting this is a guy named Frederick Tudor, who is known as the Ice King. Um, it's a good nickname. Yeah. And, and his idea was, and he starts this in, in the first decade of the 19th century, he said, look, there are people, wealthy people in the American South and in the Caribbean who would pay through through the nose for ice. And so he's excavating ice from uh, lakes in, in New England, upstate New York, from rivers, and shipping it around the world. He's first, first, he's shipping it to, to places like Charleston, but also places like Cuba, and, and charging astronomical amounts. So how's he actually shipping it? How do you ship ice without it melting? Well, it, tricky. Um, and, he, and he gets better at it over time, but it, it's about largely about packing it in sawdust. Right. And that allowed you to ship not only the ice, but other kinds of goods that need to be cool in order to survive, you know, things like butter. You can ship those uh, pretty, you know, much more easily with, with, this, with this ice. And he's even shipping things to India uh, eventually. So it, it's, a, it's a big trade, but it's a luxury trade. And he starts to advertise things like, you know, having ice in your drinks. And, and he has this... I guess this is a technique later picked up by, by drug dealers. He often initially makes the first shipment of ice free. And he says, basically, once you've had cold water or cold drinks, you will never, ever want to go back to having lukewarm water for, uh, you know, with, with, your, with, with your food. Um, and so he gets people sort of addicted to ice as a phenomenon. And this ice trade picks up steam. Um, that's a bad metaphor. Um over the course of the, the 19th century, and it sort of develops in tandem with railroads because it allows, railroads allow ice to be shipped around the country, uh, so much so that by you know the end of the 19th century, there's only like 90,000 people involved in the ice trade. And it's used for, for a variety of things. It's used for shipping meats. That way you can have sort of meat packing in Chicago and then ship the steaks to New York and not have them rot but you know also for things like drinks this is when americans start to put ice in their drinks yes i i mean as dedicated listeners will know my wife is not american uh but she's a keen student of the united states having gone there for many many years and, and a couple of years ago when we spent the year in charlottesville um i remember the day we arrived we were driving down we we, we flew into dallas and then we were picked up a car we were getting all kinds of furniture and so we were driving down to charlottesville and we stopped in a, at a convenience store to buy gas. And so we bought petrol, or in the, and she went in and the, in the convenience store, because it was, it was, it was at that point, it was August, so it was very, mm. very hot. And there were just bags and bags and bags and bags of ice for sale. And she made the observation, which she's made before, she had made before. She said that the key difference between Europe and America is not, it's not guns, it's not religion, mm. it's readily available ice. ice. In America, there's always, always ice, ice available, yes. and people always have ice in their drinks. And, and people and, expect, you know, when, when, if you ask for water... an expectation of copious ice. ice. Yes, yes. Um, well, I, my, my wife, who lived in France for, for a year, mem mem mentions 
being at a place and there being a bucket of ice and then the, uh, the label saying ice for Americans. Uh, because, you know, that, I think, and it's true that Americans, there's a couple of things that are happening right then that, that make ice, you know, uh, particularly prominent. One is, this is when a lot of, of, of Germans are coming to the United States. Germans like to have their beer pretty cold and, and German lager is, is you know, in terms of preparation requires cold temperatures. And so there, there's a, a synergy there between the growth in the ice industry and the arise of, of all these uh, German immigrants and the popularity of their beer. Um, Thoreau, one of the things he complains about in Walden is in the wintertime, there are people on Walden Pond who are excavating ice from it to ship around, uh, ship around the country. So it became a really uh, important industry. Um, and it sort of comes to an end in the in the twentieth uh, century when people develop artificial ways of, of manufacturing ice that doesn't involve cutting it out of lakes and, and ponds and things. Yes, you can make it at home. home. Exactly, <laughs> make your own artisanal ice. Um, but one of the people who, who really benefits, uh, at least temporarily, uh, from this this ice industry is. is President Garfield. Yeah, uh, so tell us this okay. story, David. I've, I've got to confess, I didn't know this until you mentioned it, but this is this oh, is, this I, is, I, I, I have this a great, is a great weather story. So, you know, there, there have been um, President Garfield, uh, who is obviously a lesser known late 19th century president, but but actually was a, a fairly interesting guy. He he's shot uh, on the second of, of July in 1881, so just a few months into his first term. Um, but he doesn't die. Uh, there, there's a bullet lodged in him, but he's he, he is alive. And they decide to move him from D.C. to, I believe it's coastal New Jersey, where there were some sea breezes. It would hope he'd be uh, healthier for him. They build a special train uh, to, to get him, get him how, there. How long after he was shot did they move him? Uh, just, a, I think, a few days. Right, okay. Yeah, um, he's alive for a few months uh, after he gets shot. Spoiler alert, he doesn't. Um, but even in, in, in New Jersey, it's pretty hot in the summer, Jersey Shore, etc. Um, and so they develop a special device to try to cool Garfield down. You, you know, he's, he's sort of in bed. It's 95 degrees. They develop this enormous fan that blows over a giant bucket of ice and to basically cool the room. They're able to cool the room from 95 degrees to 75 degrees. But Do you know how the fan is powered? They have a small motor, uh, you know, ga- a, a, a gasoline-powered motor uh, that's powering a, powering a fan that's then they're sort of dumping buckets and buckets of ice. Um, and, and, you know, they, but it is actually, you know, using up hundreds of pounds of ice every hour to keep Garfield cool. And what was the temperature difference? I mean, did, did it was like this... 20 degrees. Right. So, okay. I mean, it was, it was an effective air conditioning device. If you've got access to hundreds of pounds of ice an hour for one room, so probably not scalable on a you know, <laughs> no. um, you know, uh, and unfortunately, uh, President Garfield died from an infection probably caused by doctors poking their fingers into his uh, bullet wound and trying to find the bullet, and they never found the bullet, or they did find the bullet, but only after he died. Uh, but uh, probably. Uh, bad medical practices so, so that's, that's a fascinating story and I have to confess I didn't know that one um, but the fact they sent him to the Jersey Shore is interesting because I think w- one way that Americans deal with the heat and people around the world deal with the heat is to 
go to bodies of water exactly. where it's slightly cooler. And so whether it's our whether it's low country Carolina planters in the 18th century going to to Newport or um, New York bankers in the 20th century mm. and Wall Street uh, financiers going to the coast of Maine or Nantucket. I yeah. mean, this this is a phenomenon uh, that's quite uh, pronounced in, in American life. Um, and it's not just confined to the rich. I mean, I think we there are lots and lots of resorts on both coasts and particularly uh, lakes in the interior of the United States that, that cater towards middle class people or working class people, especially those that are closer to urban areas. So I'm thinking of you know, whether it's Coney Island or the Jersey Shore, sure, for yeah. example, in greater New York. Um, and, and I think this is an important phenomenon which we sometimes lose sight of. Oh, yeah, I think there's there's a very important part of American culture that's embedded within that, and I guess British culture as well. There's the the, the habit in the Victorian era of going to the beach as being a, a very common phenomenon. Uh, another sort of beneficiary of this sort of ice trade at the very end of the 19th century, um, there was an enormous heat wave in New York City in 1896, um, where in August it was well over, I think, you know, 95 degrees in New York City for a series of days. Um, 1,300 people died in, in a 10-day period in New York from heat. Uh, and some of this, this is dying from the actual effects of the heat itself. Some of it because people were sleeping on fire escapes and then accidentally rolling over and plummeting to their death. Um, but the person who, who um, the sort of the solution to it uh, relatively speaking, uh, was the New York City police commissioner who told uh, the police to distribute ice to poor people uh, in New York and that he was credited with keeping lots of people alive. New York City police commissioner in uh, 1896? Theodore Roosevelt. Roosevelt. And, and he was actually at that point not a very popular police commissioner for a variety of reasons. And his ice distribution was one of the things that revitalized his... Um, his uh, reputation. Okay, so so Theodore Roosevelt was giving out ice, which is um, very admirable of him. Uh, but but the real game changer in all this, and I guess it was anticipated by Garfield, mm. is, is the air conditioner and the invention of the air conditioner. Uh, and I think that is arguably one of the most important technological developments in American history or global history, oh, yeah. frankly, in terms of the way humanity lives, but also its consequences for, for us, us. Because yeah. you can argue that the current moment we're in in terms of climate change, is in part attributable to the air conditioner. So, David, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, right. So the the air conditioner, uh, it was invented uh, in 1902 by a guy named Willis Carrier. Uh, the Carrier Air Conditioning Company is still around. Maybe some of our listeners may, may have a Carrier uh, air conditioner. The Carrier Dome in Syracuse, Oh, New York. exactly. Yes. Right. Um, and it was not invented to keep initially uh people cool it was designed uh to to as a solution for a printing company in brooklyn that was having a problem when it got too hot and too humid in the summer with uh their color printing smudging and 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 the ink and the paper not liking the the heat and humidity and so they hired carrier who was a 25 year old sort of engineer and and uh to to build a device to uh both lower the temperature, but especially to dehumidify their printing equipment. Uh, and then he built this thing, and uh, they realized, hey, not only was the printing better, but people liked working there more because the temperature in the room wasn't so stiflingly hot. And so it was originally designed 
uh, not to benefit people per se, but to benefit sort of the new tech machinery uh, that was was coming online in the early part of the 20th century. Um, you know, the first sort of applications though of air conditioning where people get to, to experience it. Lots of people first experienced air conditioning in movie theaters. Movie theaters, uh, which obviously are, are growing in popularity in the early decades of, of the 20th century, uh, you know, in the summer often closed because it was just simply just too hot to be in those rooms. Uh, but air conditioning, when you start to see it in, in, in the 20s and especially in the 30s, made these places where people could go not only watch a movie, but a place to escape the heat. Yeah, I mean, my own reading for this shows that, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong mm. about it, is that the first air-conditioned theater was opened in 1917 in Montgomery, Alabama, yeah. which would make sense yeah. that it would be in the South. Yeah, um, yeah. you know, and, and there's one in the, the, the Rivoli Theater in Times Square is 1925, and then by the sort of, uh, mid-30s, it's, it's a fairly common phenomenon for, for air-conditioning to be in movie theaters. Well, I don't know whether you, I mean, you're, you're, you're a, just a callow youth, David, compared to me, but I certainly remember because when I, when I was growing up in New England, air conditioning wasn't that common, certainly in people's homes, because it wasn't, you know, you had a few, you had a couple of weeks a year where it was really hot, but it wasn't worth investing in air conditioning. So we would go to the movies in the mm. middle of the day in the summertime to, you know, to be in air conditioning during a heat wave. We, we did, we did the same thing. Uh, we, and we, uh, I spent part of my summers in, in, in Connecticut and it, uh, there would be a few weeks a year when it was really hot and there's no air conditioning. You go to the movies, right? Um, uh, Which, I mean, David, you you're better on these kinds of things than mm -hmm. me. But does that partially explain the summer blockbuster as a phenomenon? You know, we talk about summer blockbusters yeah, and particular yeah. kinds of. I mean, this is I'm talking off the top of my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does make sense? You know, the kinds of movies that are released in the summertime are often seen as qualitatively different, different. Yeah. Than, than those in other parts of the year. And the concept of the summer blockbuster, uh, is it related to this phenomenon? They, that's, they, a, that's, they, a, that's a good question. You're and going a, to the movies to escape the heat, heat and relax. You don't um, really want to see, you know, uh, I don't know, something. Uh, that's so a good choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at the movie you want to see once maybe and then uh, never see again because I have nightmares about that movie. Anyway, um, that's a good question. The, the blockbuster as a as a, summer blockbuster I sort of associate with the sort of mid-1970s with Jaws and Star Wars. Right, and those sure. Kinds of, but, but at that point, and at that point, the issue of, of air conditioning was, was more ubiquitous in people's homes than it was. But not totally. To be sure. Not right? totally. Certainly not in the northern tier of the United States. To be sure. I've, I've lived in multiple houses in the northern tier. My house when I lived in North Dakota had no air conditioning and it was pretty miserable for a few days out of the year. Um, I mean, well, listeners, if you know, let us know. Okay. We're, we're, That's a good this question. This is just a, something that came but, to me now. But, you know, in the 20s, when, when air conditioning gets introduced in movie theaters, the, the rate in which people went to the movies was really, really high. I mean, it was not uncommon for people to go to two or three movies a week, you know. And so there was, you know, the Hollywood industry was, was pumping out movies in part because there was such a huge demand for them. And I think part of it was demand for, for entertainment, but also... You know, the movie theater was a place where you could cool off from, from really excessive heat. So you don't really get residential air conditioning, however, till after the Second World War. Right. What you get down in the first half of the 20th century is air conditioning in some commercial spaces yeah. like theaters. Um, you had a really great exhibit in the 1939 World's Fair in St. Louis where they made an indoor igloo. And the carrier, so, so you know, St. Louis gets very yeah. hot in the summer, you know, and they were sort of demonstrating, people were just amazed at how 
you know, that experience of, of being cool in the middle of the summer then. But I think you're right. It's not, uh, it isn't ubiquitous in, in domestic spaces until after the Second World War. And so we got a couple of things that happened right after the Second World War, of course. There's a housing boom, hmm. and there's a change where people are increasingly seeking single-family housing. So, so instead of living in tenement blocks and things, apartment blocks, except for in urban areas, people are moving to the suburbs and they want single-family homes. And those frequently will have air conditioning, or occasionally in the North will have air conditioning. Equally, it changes where domestic air conditioning changes where people can live. So we get this shift in the population to the south and west. At the same time, we have this housing boom, and air conditioning is key to that. Is that, is that oh, I overstating that? I think that's. I think there's a huge demographic shift as a consequence of air conditioning. You know, the the rise of the Sun Belt. You know, term- nobody should live in Arizona. No, in large numbers, even today. <laughs> Well, especially today, yeah, frankly. Especially today, yeah. <laughs> um, but they're able to do so because of air conditioning. Or, or, or in Florida, right? I mean, one of the things that, that always, you know, that sometimes struck my students when we're, I'm teaching about slavery or the American South in the 19th century, is like, why aren't we talking about Florida? Because they think of Florida as being this huge, important state with big cities and densely populated. And, you know, no, the population of Florida was pretty small until you have air conditioning and then all of a sudden Florida becomes a very popular place to live because you can enjoy very mild winters and uh, you know air-conditioned summers um, and so you see a huge growth in the in the post-war period in places like Orlando Las Vegas Phoenix um, you know nobody should live in Las Vegas I mean in, in, without air conditioning um, I'm not sure you should even live there with air conditioning but um, you know the if you're walking around the Mojave Desert, it's not necessarily a place you would expect to put a put a city. Um, but you know, air conditioning definitely makes that that possible. Um, and as you point out, that that the, the, there's a really sort of dangerous cycle there. That that air conditioning contributes not insignificantly to global warming. 20% of the electricity generated in the United States is used to cool buildings. And I, well, that's I came across that fact in reading up for this episode. I suspect it might even be higher than that. And the rate of air conditioning in the United States is higher than any other country in the world. Right. You know, and it's not, you know, uh, something like 80% of American homes have air conditioning now. 2% of houses in India do. India's already a lot hotter but you know, so I think Americans are, are used to uh, a sort of standard of air conditioning that is sort of unparalleled uh, in the world well you'll know David as a New Yorker I mean you walk around Manhattan in the summertime and uh, in the big you know if you're walking on Fifth Avenue mm. if you're walking around, you know, around the posh shops they're they're cooling the air outside Side the doors door. yes so that so that you will not be uncomfortable. You won't even have a moment of discomfort when you're actually in the shop itself. Yeah, I know to be sure. And, and you see that in the hotels and uh, in big cities in the United States and shopping centers and everything yeah. else. So the the and and there's that paradox. I mean, it's a cliche among historians about you know in the summertime we all have to have sweaters with us because we're going to the archives. archives yes, and the archives are so cold. Oh, I, I have you know, for many years I, I uh, taught in North Dakota. So I got the benefits of the winter North Dakota, but I spent the summers in doing research in the South um, because I was a masochist. And so I got the heat, the worst part of both weather. Um, but I, I remember so many days 
walking from my parking spot to the archives at nine o'clock in the morning and being drenched in sweat just from being 90 degrees at nine in the morning and then spending all day in the archives where it's 72 degrees because that's the right temperature for the documents and then freezing and then walking back out at five o'clock at night and sweating all over again so yeah and archives are, are very cold and one of the things carrier said uh, he sort of when he was talking about sort of his vision for the air conditioning he envisioned a world in which the average businessman will rise pleasantly refreshed having slept in an air-conditioned room he will travel in an air-conditioned train and toil in an air-conditioned office you know that, that he envisioned a world in which which people would spend their entire day surrounded by air conditioning um which is the world that many Americans live in. Um, you know, I, I spent a few years living in Houston, and one of the things that struck me is that, that even in, in the heat of the summer, when it would be both extraordinarily hot and extraordinarily humid, people wouldn't, wouldn't dress for summer weather because they'd be in 72 degrees in their, in their homes, in their cars, uh, and in their, both where they're shopping and, and where they're working. You know, they had an ice rink in the mall in Houston in the summer, and it just struck me as wrong on some kind of deep philosophical level. Um, but in some ways, part of the, pro the, the problem that we're facing right now with, with global warming is, is an attribute of that, that, that we've become kind of addicted to air conditioning and become addicted to, to sort of living in places that are um, only... only um, livable be with air conditioning yeah there's a certainly a paradox there and i yeah again growing up in a more temperate climate we didn't have air conditioning because you thought I, I think the conclusion was well for a couple of weeks a year it's uncomfortable and you sleep with mm. the windows open and the shades drawn or whatever and that's just the way you and you'd you be know. a hardy new englander no, 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 i mean it wasn't yeah you know because now in part it wasn't necessary in the same way mm. that you know, when there was the terrible um, power outage last winter in Texas and the electrical grid failed. Mm. Well, in part, that was because there, well, there were lots of reasons mm. for that. But, but, but I think Texans are not necessarily as um, prepared for the cold as people in north, more northerly climes are. It's, 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 it's the same phenomenon. It's, mm. you, know, you do adapt to your environment. But we now... Or you used to adapt to your environment. We now live in a world where we have convinced ourselves, and by we, we're really, we really are talking about Americans in mm. this context, have accept, have sort of come to the view that we shouldn't, you know, that carrier, what, what carrier said is true. Basically, I should be able to live in the exact same environment, wear the exact same clothing 12 months of the year without having to adjust to it, apart yeah. from the brief period between my, when I, I leave my front door and go to my car. Oh, you have an air conditioned garage, Frank. You don't need. You don't actually need to go. <laughs> Literally, you don't need to go outside. Right? Um, and that's when you describe it in those terms. It's it's kind of absurd. Yeah, uh, that, that we should be comfortable all the time. It seems to be. You know, uh, I mean, there's obviously the, the appeal of that is is obvious, but it is it, it, the cost of it is is huge. Right, and we now know. I mean, you only have to look at you know temperatures of 115 degrees in Portland, Oregon, mm. or Vancouver, British Columbia. <laughs> And, and and wildfires raging out of control right now in Western North America or the floods that recently had, the deadly floods in Germany or central China that, mm. that have occurred over the past few days. You know, the cost of this is now apparent to us. Uh, without a doubt. I mean, so what, what then is the, 
solution? Do we ban air conditioning? <sighs> do we <laughs> do we evacuate Phoenix and say all of you have to move to, to Minnesota now? No, of course we don't. But but I mean I I do wonder whether. The answer is I don't know, David. As you agree, and if I, I, I don't know for sure. I, I do think we have to expect some level of discomfort mm. in order to keep the, the planet habitable. Yes. And, and that may sound like understatement. I don't know what level of discomfort that is, but I, I don't think you need to um, cool the temperature in public spaces or private spaces, mm. for that matter, to such an extent that it's necessary to wear a sweater in the summertime. Yes. <laughs> in other words, I, I wonder if there are... I mean, I think there are major changes we need to make to address climate change, but I do think there are probably minor changes that could be made where if, okay, if everybody has their... You, know, you don't have to have the air... You keep citing 72. Mm. A lot of people put their air conditioner at 68 um, yeah. in the U.S. And, and you know, you don't have to have it at 68. You don't have to have it on in March, necessarily, um, depending on the temperature. So, so there are, there are. I think people might have to make adjustments um, for the greater good, whether they're willing to do so. It's fair. It goes to the mm. dilemma we as a species face at the moment, which is experiencing some sort of mild discomfort in the present to benefit our mm, sure. descendants a century from now. Because that's really what we're talking about. Well, although, although, sorry, sorry to yeah. interrupt you, and I'll hand I'll hand the mic back to you. Uh, one thing that's become clear to me, at least in the past couple of years, but particularly the past few weeks, is we've seen the wildfires in Western North America, um, the flooding in Germany and Belgium, the flooding in China, etc. The kind of apocalyptic scenarios that were spoken of just a few years ago about what climate change would look like. Well, they're no longer. You know, that was sort of like, oh, by 2050, this is what it'll look like. No, 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 it's 2021 and we're living it now. So in that sense, and this, this is definitely the wrong metaphor, we're almost like the frog in the boiling water, right? That's gradually rising in temperature um, without really realizing it. Well, I think we've reached the boiling point. Maybe that is the right answer. Anyway, exactly. David, let me turn it well, over. I mean, I think so, one of the things we need to, to maybe learn from, from this history is there, there are actually ways of dealing with heat that aren't as technological as... as say air conditioning well i think one of the problems is actually now houses are being built with air conditioning in mind and you can't cool them off without air conditioning um you know there are things we can do in terms of, of, of domestic architecture there's things that we can do in terms of, of learning to deal with the heat uh, that we can, we can learn from from earlier days yeah to illustrate this point and one point we should have made when we talked about the, the spread of air conditioning mm -hmm. is domestic architecture changed so big windows and shutters were out and porches and verandas were out. And now houses that could be completely enclosed and hermetically sealed are in. Yeah, yeah. And they're also quite large. And so they, they actually cost a lot to both heat and cool. Um, b before we went on, and it's it's uh, we were looking at my grandparents' house online, David and I, because I was describing my grandparents had a house um, in, in Rhode Island, in Cranston, Rhode Island, outside of Providence. And it had a breezeway, which was a sort of open passage between the garage and the house itself it was a very small house. It was a two-bedroom house. And I, I, I was showing it to David before we went on. And what was interesting was in the, the realtor's listing where we saw it, that breezeway is gone. It's been replaced by a room, clearly. So it's been filled in. You, I remember sitting in that breezeway as a kid. That's where we would go when it was very hot. Yeah. Because it was, as the name would suggest, it was a passage through which 
air circulated and you could sit there there was no air conditioning in the house you could sit there and cool off that's been replaced apropos of what you were saying um it's clearly been remodeled and that's now a room and i'm sure the house must be air conditioned now and the kind of carbon footprint of that house will be much greater now than it was when the house was built in 1952 so just to illustrate that the point you just made about the way architecture has changed and the way domestic architecture has changed and we may have to go back you know that house would not be worse with a breezeway no it would not <laughs> i suspect it's probably so hot now in new england that it would still need air conditioning uh but you wouldn't necessarily have to live in the same way i guess all right well we will hopefully everyone who is listening to this uh, it's cool it's cool you have a nice cool beverage maybe a glass of, of iced tea uh which is a, you know one of the ways in which People in the South have learned to deal with the heat. Um, uh, and uh, time for the last drops, which yeah. can be cooled or hot as, as people are so inclined. Um, what you got? So, so David, which is, as will be typical for me, I want to I um, recommend something to people that they probably haven't heard of. You know, you know I'm on the cutting edge. Exactly. Of things, you so, are uh, which culture maven. Say, yes, yeah. this thing's been out for months and months and months. Which is the, I want to recommend the Ken Burns documentary on Ernest Hemingway. Okay, I've not seen this. Well, it's currently being shown on BBC4. So it was shown in the United States in the spring. So there was a lot of attention on social media and other media then. Uh, and it, and within the past month or so, it's, appear, it's appeared on, on BBC4 here in the UK. And it's very good. It's very good. I mean, I... I, I I have mixed views on Ken Burns. I'm sure you do, yeah, given yeah. The, the Civil War documentary and the controversy surrounding that. Uh, but I think Ken Burns did a really good job with this. And, and actually, I'm waiting for the Ken Burns documentary on Ken Burns' documentary. Because <laughs> <laughs> he, too, is now an American, totemic American figure, yes. which is his, his main themes. But he did a really good job, I think, with Hemingway uh, in, in all kinds of ways. Hemingway, who's a very, very complex figure let's say mm. and and a difficult figure um a figure who it's difficult to admire in many respects a problematic figure let's just say but he, he dealt with Hemingway warts and all um in that Ken Burns way which at its best is very very effective storytelling and it was it, it's really really good I, I, I can strongly recommend it and one thing I would observe is I have two observations one is Hemingway suffered a series of concussions, hmm. including very, very young when he, you know, when he was at the Italian front in, in the First World War, a very severe concussion. And given what we now know about CTE and the long-term damage to people who suffer repeated concussions, and I'm thinking about the kind of stories we've seen about American football players and, and ice hockey players. Um, and military veterans. Yeah, and the difficulty they often have later in life. Hmm. Uh, a lot of Hemingway's antisocial behavior and a lot of his, frankly, most problematic behavior, I wonder how much of it can be attributed to CTE. And, and yeah, the, the, the documentary sense. kind of implies this, but doesn't really go into it as much, in that much detail. But I think, and the, the fact that he killed himself. Mm -hmm. I mean, we now know a lot of people who suffer repeated head traumas often commit suicide. I think Hemingway's life appears in a very different light in light of what we now know about about. Uh, repeated concussions and I think that, that was an interesting okay. feature the other thing I'd say is um, this documentary seems to have helped rehabilitate Hemingway at the moment I mean I think he's, he's yeah Hemingway doesn't I'm not in, in 
compliance with the sort of social mood of, of 2021 very much. No, no, no. He, he does not fit the current mood, but he's still having a little bit of a moment thanks to this documentary, I think. And I contrast that with Philip Roth, who there was a big biography yeah. of Philip Roth that came out um, in, in, in the spring by... Make sure I get this. Blake Bailey was the name of the, the author. Uh, the author, Mr. Bailey, has now been subject to lots of very, very serious accusations, um, including a rape charge or a rape accusation. It hasn't resulted in a charge um, yet. Uh, but Philip Roth, who's also a very, very problematic American writer, yes. um, who I think was hoping, you know, he, he this was an authorized biography, uh, and I think he had hoped that Bailey would be able to re help rehabilitate him. Uh, his reputation posthumously hasn't worked out that way. So the fact that Roth is a deeply problematic figure, especially where women are concerned, and the person who wrote his authorized biography seems to have very, very serious problems in that area. The whole thing's been a bit of a mess, and actually, if anything, Roth has been harmed posthumously. No. So the whole point is you can't control your reputation. But but uh, Unless you have Ken Burns doing it. Unless you have Ken Burns doing it. Right. But, 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 but anyway, what I would say is... It's. Um, I would recommend this this biography. Sorry, this documentary on, on Ernest Hemingway, which I think is quite. It's the best kind of Ken Burns documentary. Mm. I don't say that, uh, you know, with, with any kind of sarcasm or criticism. We might do an episode. We should do an episode on Ken Burns. Maybe Ken Burns is a very interesting guy. I think he's had yeah. a huge impact on the culture. Yeah, he's absolutely. Uh, but but um, anyway, so I recommend that. What's yours, David? Uh, I want to recommend uh, the Imagineering story. This is on Disney Plus and Frank doesn't have Disney Plus and he's kind of... David's always lording it over me that he has Disney Plus. You, you, missed, on, you missed out on, on The Mandalorian and on Loki and on Want. You're missing out on some good stuff here. Yeah, David, I'm watching BBC4 and I'm educating myself with some very I'm, sophisticated I'm, documentaries. I'm not, I'm not a very <laughs> cultured guy. Um... Summer yeah. blockbuster guy. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I, I enjoy my MCU anyway, stuff. So, anyway, sorry. Uh, the Imagineering story uh, is a, a documentary. It's it's uh, narrated by by actress An An Angela Bassett. Uh, it's about uh, the the Disney parks. Oh, uh, it's right. about Disneyland, Disney World, and and Euro Disney and um, Disneyland Japan, uh, Tokyo. Uh, but so it's about the history of the parks. Um, it's a really interesting. I've only. There's six episodes. I've seen half of them thus far. Um, so I'm into the sort of 1980s period. Um, and obviously you need to watch it with, with a grain of salt because it's a Disney product designed in part to promote Disney stuff on a Disney channel. Um, but it's a really, they got really interesting document, you know, footage from the construction of the parks and, and interviews with the people who made the various rides. And it's about largely the, the, the people who are responsible for creating you know, Pirates of the, uh, the Caribbean and, and, and the Haunted Mansion and all the other kinds of rides that have become, you know, iconic and Epcot and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so uh, definitely worth watching if you're interested in, in sort of seeing the development of those parks, uh, which I think have a very particular, uh, important place in American culture. Oh, good, good. Uh, have you been to uh, any of these parks? I've been to, to, to many of these parks. I've been to... Disney World and Disneyland. I've been to Euro Disney and Disneyland Tokyo. Wow! So I've, I've been, I've been, I've done a lot of Disney stuff. I've not taken my kids on uh, to surprise you. Um, <laughs> that, <laughs> that doesn't help you the way you think it does. It <laughs> is a statement. <laughs> oh, I, I, and, I, and, we, we, I, and we lived in Florida for years. We used to take them to Orlando all the time. We never went to Disney World. I don't know. Well, I don't know why. Um, um, but. Uh, yeah, no, well, I, I went to many of these parks as a kid. 
Right. As a kid or as an adult? As a kid. Right, right. Okay. And the last park of these I visited, I was like 12 or 13. Oh, okay. I'm glad you clarified that. So Because the implication of what you said was you've been visiting these parks and not taking your children. No, 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 no. <laughs> no okay, I, all right. I, no, 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 all right. I'm glad you clarified that, right? Uh, yeah, no. This, this was stuff I did as a kid. Um, maybe I was 15 when I visited the last one. But uh, relatively young. So a long time ago. Uh, but but they're very interesting sort of places to sort of think about. You know, American culture and, and venues for the, that are sort of showcases of, of America for the rest of the world. So, well, that's right. And the way that, I mean, they're presenting a particular version mm, of, right. of America and American history. I, I don't know whether you saw in the press this week that uh, in the animatronic, you know, Hall of Presidents, whatever they yes. call it, they've just revealed the, the Joe Biden. Oh, really? Yeah, Disney. Uh, I'm not using the right language. This isn't my world, but uh, that the, the Disney, sorry, the, the Biden. Animatronic, character. animatronic Biden yes. in the Hall of Presidents has been has been. Oh, that's uh, exciting! Yeah, so Google that. It's 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 not bad. Yeah, the it's, Trump the Trump the, one is bad. The Trump one is bad. It's better than the Trump one. It's All right. The Trump one. On All right, note, David. Cheers. <laughs> the Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh and Frank is Professor of American History and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.